everyone, and welcome to another episode of Climate Ready. I'm Ingrid Timbo, and I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Alex Maroner. We hope that you are all staying safe and healthy during the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. We've taken a bit of a break from recording and producing new episodes, but we're back with another conversation recorded earlier this year with psychotherapist and social worker Andrew Bryant on the topic of climate grief. And man, I have to say, as this year has gone on, this conversation has only become more relevant. We're recording this introduction as much of the Western United States is facing an unprecedented fire season. The air outside my home here in Portland, Oregon, has been hazardous to breathe for well over a week now. And while the massive wildfires cannot be attributed to any single cause, we know that climate change is certainly playing a role in these new wildfire regimes. I'm really glad that we're getting this episode out there because, as Ingrid notes, our discussion with Andrew touched on the importance of mental health in dealing with difficult phenomena like climate change or even global pandemics. The psychological aspects of the climate crisis have yet to be studied in depth, but it's great to know that there are professionals out there who are highlighting this critical topic. I really hope that this message resonates with you and it's useful as you navigate this extremely unusual year. Well, with that set up, let's jump right into our discussion with Andrew Bryant, founder of the Climate and Mind community. Stick around after the main interview for another installment of Climate of Hope in partnership with our friends at the World Youth Parliament for Water, this time featuring Lynn Porta of the North American Youth Parliament for Water. Enjoy! Climate Ready is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an international members-based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de. Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water. Today on Climate Ready, we have an amazing guest joining us for a timely conversation during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. We're joined by Andrew Bryant to discuss aspects of mental health, and although we'll mostly be focusing on the idea of climate grief, we can all learn from some of the lessons he'll share. Andrew is a clinical social worker and psychotherapist in Seattle, Washington in the USA, where he works as a therapist at North Seattle Therapy and Counseling. More recently, Andrew also became the creator of Climate and Mind, which is an online resource center dedicated to help people cope with climate change and other ecological crises. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So, Andrew, for our listeners who might not be as familiar with you or your work, could you just start off by giving a bit of a background about yourself? How long have you been a social worker, psychotherapist? And then kind of more specifically to our topic today, do you recall when you first noticed that climate change was becoming kind of a recurring concern 
both among maybe your clients or just in society uh, more generally? Well, I've been a social worker and therapist for about 10 years. If you count my uh, graduate school experiences, I studied in New York City before I moved back to Seattle to open up this practice that I've been running. And I would say the first time the issue of climate change and mental health came up in my practice was probably a number of years ago uh, involving someone who was just experiencing a lot of anxiety about the future, reading the news. And this is actually before it became more and more obvious uh, and more and more discussed in the media that we were kind of on the brink of experiencing climate change impacts soon. But he was, in, he was discussing with his wife whether they should have another child. And his wife said, no, we should just have another child. We want, want our kid to have a sibling and it's going to be okay. She, you know, she believed in climate change and all that, but she just wanted to go ahead. And he just felt an immense amount of anxiety and kind of anticipated grief about the future that that kid was going to experience. That was a number of years ago. And since then, you know, every couple months, especially since I've started this Climate in Mind project, it's more re- more often, like every month or a couple times a month, I get reached out to by people locally in Seattle uh, looking for therapy to help them deal with these kinds of issues. Um, or I've been, you know, getting more and more contacts from places outside of Seattle, outside of Washington State, outside of the United States, people who come across my website and are looking for suggestions of what they call climate therapist, uh, which isn't an actual designation as far as I know, but it's the idea of someone who can talk, they can talk to about climate grief, climate anxiety, climate depression, and someone who will understand uh, where, they're, where they're coming from. So the more, con- more experience I had of talking to people dealing with these issues in, in my practice, the more I began to realize this is something important and new that needs to be looked at in my field. Have you found so far that concern around climate change is more often sparked by a specific event, such as like a hurricane or, or a flood, or is it often more diffuse than that? You know, I, I would say it comes in both flavors. There's people who have been reading the news over the years um, and just seeing worse and worse predictions and more and more scary images and manifestations of ecological crisis. In those cases, their anxiety has been kind of mounting over, sometimes over the decades. For other people, I mean, the 2018 IPCC report that came out, I guess that's been a year and a half now. Um, that was kind of a stimulus for people to say, oh, before I was thinking this was going to be something in my, maybe in my grandkids' experience if I never, if it, if it doesn't get solved. That report was kind of a wake-up call to say, this might be something I experience in my lifetime sooner than rather than later, and I'm going to have to think about the consequences of that. Locally here in Seattle, or I guess I should say in Washington or the Pacific Northwest of the U.S., uh, we had two seasons of smoke from wildfires. It was, I guess, 2017 and 2018, where in the summer there was just a smoky haze throughout the, the region. And that was a very direct wake-up call. And I would say that for myself, too. It was the first time I kind of felt uh, experientially what it would be like to 
be in a in a situation where the my environment wasn't safe just a glimmer of what other people around the world have already been experiencing uh, who are more more on the front lines but that was an emotional wake up and a personal wake up call for me and i think a lot of other people in the area definitely I was looking at your website and I started to think about people react very differently, obviously, to these sorts of threats or crises. And I think my mind immediately went to the standard like Kubler-Ross definition, five stages of grief. And for our listeners, that was developed by a famous psychiatrist, I think in the late 60s, about the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I know on your website, uh, you have worked with these, um, but also kind of adapted them to fit more kind of this climate grief uh, model that you're talking about. Can you tell us a bit more about these different reactions and how you've adapted that standard approach to grief? Sure. Um, Well, I always have to kind of say uh, in the beginning of talking about Kubler-Ross stages is that they're kind of controversial, even though they're the most well-known. Originally, the idea was developed for very different circumstances from climate change, uh, people at end of life you know, with chronic illnesses and that sort of kind of adjusting or grieving the, their own loss of life or approaching death. So climate change is obviously really different from that. Uh, it, there's kind of an ongoing process that doesn't have a clear end point and a continued exposure to stressors and new things to grieve about and new things to be scared of in the future. So it's it's really different from that. And, and also the, the linear model of like one stage and the second stage and the third stage and the, sort of a process of going from one to the, the first to the last has also been criticized. And I don't tend to think of it that way either. The way I've looked at it is just these are five different ways that ecological grief and climate grief can manifest. And it's highlighting the emotional level of how these impact us and the different ways we have for coping with something that's very scary or very sad. And I should probably define those a little bit. Climate grief is a form of ecological grief, which has been a term that's been used for a couple of decades. And it is basically the grief felt about anticipated loss or experienced loss of our natural system, ecological system, and or grief about how those changes are gonna impact us in terms of our way of life, our culture, our expectations for the future. So grief is about loss or anticipated loss. And we're seeing that in as we look at climate change in all kinds of different ways, and we all have all kinds of different coping skills for dealing with those losses. Uh, And the Kubler-Ross stages is one way of breaking those down into five different categories. The way that you're talking about it is that these aren't necessarily linear stages, quote unquote, or it's not that everyone will experience all of them either. Yeah, exactly. I don't see a kind of clear pattern of people's progression. In fact, the last stage is acceptance, but most things in life we don't just accept, come to a place of acceptance and then stay there forever or indefinitely new news, new life stages or circumstances, new reports and scary events can throw us back into the earlier, I don't want to say earlier stages, but other stages like denial or anger or bargaining. So it's it's not a linear model by any means. People are complicated and we go through lots of different stages in life. So it makes sense that we don't work so simply. And maybe one of the major distinctions, as you said, this 
this model was designed to address the concept maybe of human mortality or something like that. So it would be considered a good thing to get towards the final step of acceptance, whereas I would think it would be it's pretty counterintuitive. I don't think you would want that to be the final emotion you get towards when you're talking about climate grief. You know, you don't want to just accept climate change. In fact, you, you'd probably like to do something else and, and to take action against it. Because kind of what I see underlying all of these different emotions, you know, this range of emotions you might experience of anger and depression is really just a sense of powerlessness against climate change. Is that one of the main concerns that you've seen through your own experience or through your clients? For sure. A lot of people, if you really kind of slow down and dig down into how they're feeling about some, about, you know, you could say it about things that are wrong with the world in general, um, but for with climate change or the ecosystem in particular, there's a feeling like, I want to be able to fix this. I want to be able to do something that will solve this problem because it's scary or sad or upsetting. The next sort of logical step is, wow, this is too big for one person to, to tackle. I mean, nothing makes that more obvious than something like climate change, which is so enormous. Uh, and so the, then, you know, the next step after that is, is a sense of powerlessness. Like, what, what can I do? There's nothing I can really do to fix this problem. Now, there are obviously there are things that one can do to contribute to solutions. But in, in so often in the back of our minds, we're looking for something that will, you know, be the thing that will save the world. And when that's not there, we can fall into into different not so healthy responses like depression or uh, helplessness or denial, you know, ignoring the situation and just saying, what am I going to, you know, what can I do? It's not, not nothing I can have control over. One thing I wanted to just say about acceptance is I think you're, you're, you're right that there's a different type of acceptance that can come about around climate change compared to, say, something that's actually inevitable, like death. But there is a kind of form of acceptance that is more about accepting the reality of the situation as we're facing it in the present moment and coming to some kind of clarity about that without shutting down and and quitting. So in that sense, acceptance is really important because it, it means accepting the situation for what it is, including my own or one's own role in, in that, either as a consumer or a human being or one's role in their your ability to, to take action. Sometimes people call it radical acceptance and, and also acceptance that kind of we have to go on living, uh, living our lives. And so how do I come to terms with the fact that I have to go on living my life and not always be thinking about this? And I need to take care of myself and take care of my physical health and mental health and relationships and not completely abandon my concern for the natural world and for people on the earth. You know, I know that these are all feelings, all of these different stages. I've been on this continuum <laughs> for a long time myself and going back and forth. And, you know, for me personally, through the work, that Alex and I do. That's my quote unquote way of dealing with that sense of powerlessness. But you had mentioned, you know, I'm just trying to think for our listeners, thinking of different opportunities or options for them in terms of addressing this feeling that there's not much that we can do about it. Yeah, well, I can talk about how I try my best to help other people uh, work through that, you know, go from shock or fear or whatever initial stage to some sort of action. I have a sort of a pretty simple framework 
that I try to come back to in my therapy and in my thinking about climate change and mental health. And it's basically the idea that there's sort of four steps that you can go through. These are different from stages that we were talking about before, but four steps. And it's important to go sort of pay attention to all of them in balance instead of focusing on one or the other alone. So the first step is called feel, which basically means feel how you're feeling. And it's really about checking in with yourself and acknowledging and allowing for what you're what you're feeling about the situation. And that could be grief or anxiety or sadness or hope or probably some combination, some complicated combination of those and other other feelings. Uh, guilt is, is a common one. So the first step is kind of like not skipping over your feelings, because usually what happens if we skip over our feelings and jump into action is that we either find something that's not in alignment with where we're at or we're doing we're taking action in some sort of out of some sort of urgency that will not quite work out for us in the long on the long run we might burn out or we might get discouraged or we won't have worked through the feelings that we had to begin underlying that action so feel is the first step talk is the second step which means talking to people about how you're feeling and so a lot of people are experiencing a lot of grief i've talked to folks at um, various climate conferences who've said, you know, I've been working in the field of resource management for three decades, and nobody's ever mentioned the word climate grief to me before, but I realize now that I've been experiencing that all this time. And I said, well, huh, you know, you know, you might want to bring that up in the lunchroom next time you go to work. You know, I bet other people will know what you're talking about. There's something about speaking about the feelings taking it out from the inside and putting it outside with someone who's safe and understanding that can be really helpful and transformative. And then the next two stages are unite, which means kind of finding people who share those concerns or feelings and help you feel less alone and less isolated in your experience of grief or depression or anxiety. And then only after you've gone through those first three steps, feel, talk, unite, then you're in a good place to come up with an action that is in alignment with who you are, what your strengths are, what your capacities are and your resources are to find an action that feels right. And then, you know, you repeat the process. Now that makes total sense. And I think that the way that you've laid out those four phases is structured in a way to where it might really get at the heart of the matter in the, in the sense that if a lot of the underlying issue is the sense of isolation and powerlessness that to first start by acknowledging your feelings and then talking it out. But really, probably that third phase of uniting is one of the most important phases because collective action, as we all can acknowledge, is going to be much more effective in the long run, especially if we're trying to move towards systemic changes that are necessary to address climate change, that uniting together before you take action seems really critical. You know, individual action is great as well, but through sort of uniting together towards a common cause, you can magnify your impact. And then, Andrew, maybe continuing this conversation around the motivations behind climate actions, we haven't touched on this too much yet, but another feeling that's often tied with our emotions around climate change is the idea of guilt. Do you find that guilt can be motivating, or is it more often serving as a crutch? I think guilt is such a common feeling for people to have around these issues. Guilt about action that they're taking on an individual level and guilt about action they might be taking on an activist level or not taking. And guilt about existing, 
you know, yeah. breathing and living on the earth and consuming resources, guilt about having kids, guilt about, well, you get the picture. And it's really not helpful. You know, it's just, it really shuts people down and makes them either feel helpless again or take action just for the sake of it. Like, I just better do something so I feel less guilty. And that doesn't usually lead to super productive steps forward. It's usually just, it's kind of goes into that bargaining category of the Kubler-Ross stages where it's like, if I do this, maybe I just won't feel as guilty for a while. Literally just before we dialed you in for this interview, Alex and I were talking about the guilt aspect of this. I know we're talking about climate grief, but we could also like do a whole podcast just on climate guilt especially, you know, for us as being very privileged Western individuals, you know, that's something I feel like I experience a lot. You know, another topic that we have talked about before and and really want to do more episodes on too is kind of looking at climate justice issues as well. That plays right into that whole guilt aspect of things. I know that I, I definitely struggle with, but I completely agree with you that it's not really a productive uh, mode <laughs> to operate in. Just to be clear, like there's a, and I think this is maybe obvious. Well, maybe it's not. You can see that there's something wrong with the situation or even something that needs to change about, I can see something that needs to change about my behavior or my actions or my focus. That can be very productive, but you don't have to feel, you don't have to turn that in on yourself and say that that means something about who I am. So that's, I guess I want to just make a distinction between like seeing sometimes there are really important things we needed to do differently, or maybe we made a mistake and hurt someone or did something wrong. And you can feel genuine regret or sadness about that. And that can be productive. But what's not productive is turning it in on yourself and feeling bad about you as a person, because that's really disempowering and shuts people down and, and keeps people stuck. So for those people who might be feeling some sort of climate grief, what types of tools or support networks are available for anyone out there trying to cope with climate change anxiety or other emotions. And maybe this could be an opportunity to tell us more about what you're doing with your Climate and Mind website as well. I'm a therapist, but I don't think climate therapy is the solution to to these issues by any means. But it can be a helpful entry point to talking about anxiety and depression. A lot of the time ways in climate-related anxiety and depression manifest is related to kind of underlying personality patterns. So finding a therapist can be a helpful way of doing that. And coming together with, in groups, you know, finding people who share similar feelings and talking about the emotions that you're having, just naming them. I can't understate how, how helpful that can be for a lot of people. Unfortunately, it's relatively new and there's not a lot of resources out there. So people have to kind of take it take it in their own hands, I think, and form groups if they need to on their own or find support around them that they can gather together to get through this. The Climate in Mind website, part of the aim was to bring together resources that are out there, both for mental health professionals, like therapists looking for exploration of this topic in a clinical way, researchers just wanting to discuss it on a sort of more thematic way, and that was the original intent. And as more and more people reached out to me from the general public and the media, I thought, oh, this might be useful for people who are looking for support or resources or next steps. So on the website, there's a list of resources, books, groups, people, articles, videos, guidebooks, 
And they're all particular. What would be helpful for one person would be different from what would be helpful for another. But I encourage people to check that out and especially the groups page, because going back to that idea of uh, uniting being so important, finding groups that are doing things to foster uh, um, openness about climate related emotions is really, really important. So before we wrap up, I was interested if you have any thoughts on, you know, I know there's been a big push over the last year or two around kind of the language that we use when we talk about climate change. And there's been this big emphasis on changing it from climate change to climate crisis or the global climate emergency and these sorts of things, because people were thinking, you know, climate change just doesn't sound like anything. And so we need to we need to give it the weight that it deserves so that people actually wake up and pay attention. But I'm wondering then from a mental health perspective, if you've seen what impact that has had maybe on people's own well-being and mental health and, and able to kind of process these things, or if you have thoughts on kind of the language around climate change. Yeah, it's occurring to me that I think on my website, I've been trying to use the phrase climate crisis for, for that reason. And I notice, I think I in conversation, I end up, I keep slipping back into climate change, which is kind of just out of habit, I think, over the decades. Um, same, same for us too. Yeah, this might be tangential, but I think worth pointing out that on a certain level, I think it's worth saying that you know anxiety about these issues is reasonable and makes sense. It is appropriate to feel anxious about Uh, what's happening to the planet. And so language like crisis and emergency that that is really pointing to the reality, at least from a lot of people's perspective, including almost all scientists who are studying this, points to the reality that we're in a crisis is just sort of stating it like it is. Sort of like, I mean, we're in a coronavirus crisis or a COVID crisis right now. I mean, you can you could find another word like pandemic, but nobody's saying, you know, coronavirus change or coronavirus situation. People are calling it what it is because it's so disruptive and so huge. So I'm not against using language that promotes appropriate anxiety. Anxiety is, an, is a healthy emotion. Uh, it's what probably kept us alive for hundreds of thousands of years. And grief is also an appropriate emotion. Sadness about reality of loss, uh, we shouldn't be feeling that way if we're really in touch with our emotions about potential loss. Um, so I'm, I'm okay with, with stronger language that might name the situation for what it is. And to me, I think of these, you know, all these emotions are, are feelings. They're ex- human experiences. There's nothing good or bad about them. They're just real. What we do next is a different story, you know, so that there's healthy and unhealthy or appropriate or inappropriate ways of acting out our emotions, like anxiety or depression. And so what my goal is to help people feel like really understand what's going on on the planet, feel the emotions they're having, even if it's challenging, and then find ways to deal with them in a healthy way, healthy for themselves and healthy for the planet in the sense of being productive and moving towards change. Totally. And I think that circles back to our earlier conversation about radical acceptance, right? Yeah. It's okay to name things as they are. It's okay to feel these feelings that we're feeling. You know, it's it's accepting that this is the reality that we live in. And so we need to not be in denial and to yeah. say things when they need to be said. 
And, you know, it just feels good to talk about it. I, I, as a therapist, it's kind of, I feel um, sometimes it's really so, so such a simplistic thing to say, but I'm often find myself saying, you know, you might want to talk to this person. You might want to talk to someone about that. Or if you're, you know, concerned or worried, you know, have you thought about having a conversation? And sometimes we're scared to have those conversations for lots of different reasons, but it generally, it, it generally helps and it helps us feel less alone and helps us feel more empowered and healthy yeah i like it ending on a positive note thanks for all the insight and for shedding light on this overlooked topic andrew we can definitely all use more tools in our emotional tool belts these days thanks a lot for your time it'll be useful i think for folks good i hope so that's that vacuum i was talking about like you know this seems like something that people want to talk about but maybe don't have the language for so i hope it's helpful to start some good conversations Thanks a lot, you guys. Good talking with you. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, like we said at the outset, that was a really great interview. I was glad we got to be joined by Andrew Bryant and get what felt like a, uh, a free therapy session there. I like the way that Dr. Bryant framed empowering ourselves to respond to the complex emotions we might be feeling, and in particular in the four steps that he outlines, which were, again, to feel how you're feeling, you know, don't skip over these emotions, then talk to others about how you're feeling, unite with others who feel the same way, and then ultimately come up with an action or a set of actions that are aligned with your capabilities and your goals. I totally agree. I also want to reiterate the point he made that feeling anxiety about the climate crisis is a completely reasonable response to the reality that we are living in. It's okay to feel anxious, sad, or grief about loss. The key is identifying healthy ways to act on these emotions, both for yourself and for the planet. Finally, I would really encourage you to check out the Climate and Mind website to find more resources if you or someone you know is struggling with depression or anxiety, or simply wants to learn more or connect with groups in your area that are talking about mental health and climate change. And with that, we'll now turn to our Climate of Hope segment in partnership with the World Youth Parliament for Water. Lynn Porta is a graduate student in Water Resources Policy and Management at Oregon State University and she is co-president of the newly formed North American Youth Parliament for Water. Lynn shares her insights on how international agreements and soft laws around shared freshwater resources create room for hope through some really future-focused thinking. Unfortunately, you don't have to look hard to recognize the impacts of climate change in any immediate area you're in. We have largely left the period of watching for signs to the future regarding how climate change will impact us and have entered the age of seeing it play out before our eyes in daily life as long as you're willing to look. As someone who's always been prone to globetrotting rather than setting down roots, I've had the opportunity to see impacts of climate change on relatively diverse landscapes, coniferous forests of the Cascades and high desert regions in the Pacific Northwest of North America, really lush mountain lakes in the northeast in Appalachia, USA, chaparral and deserts in the southeastern Mediterranean coast countries. These are all places I've lived in, become attached to, and I've seen the impacts of climate change from a combination of processes 
that are driving climate change that localities did not have the power to prevent, but were also exacerbated by previous policy inaction hampered by jurisdictional limitations. This is a prime example of the importance of the Sustainable Development Goal 6.5 for the use and incorporation of integrated water resources management and transboundary cooperation in all levels of governance. My work at the intersection of global governance and water resources and adaptability and water resources management at the transboundary level speaks to a new area of preparedness and soft law and international agreements regarding shared freshwater resources. I work with the Transboundary Freshwater Dispute Database hosted by Oregon State University, specifically within their International Freshwater Treaties Database. And recent assessments of treaty contents about freshwater resources speak to a degree of hope for the future in terms of adaptive capacity in these soft law policies. When governments with shared water resources are coming together, they want to address water resources with a degree of flexibility and with concern for the future of their shared resources. Now, to be clear, even relatively recent international treaties rarely explicitly mention climate change in their wording or its impacts in relation to water resources. The language that creates room for a climate of hope, as I see it, instead comes from rising occurrences that you see in these documents of future-oriented, realistic recognition that water availability and water resources are changing, and a need to proactively protect these resources at the transboundary level. My own research using the International Freshwater Treaties Database preliminarily notes that concerns for phrases like future generations and the provision of water for environmental services and ecosystem functioning and the protections of both water quality and water quantity, two different aspects in these treaties, are building as we look at the contents of these documents over time. These documents are also increasingly engaging in the institutionalization of freshwater resources, in that they lay the framework for states to cooperatively manage their shared water resources through forums like joint commissions, information sharing, monitoring of the agreement principles itself, and in some cases, establishing river basin organizations with broad mandates for transboundary management of shared resources. These are measures that are future-focused, cognizant of environmental needs and connectivity with dependent human systems, and generally open to flexibility for the future. With concepts like these becoming more popular in international agreements, they provide a platform for tracking in real time and retroactively the increasing interest and preparedness for environmental change becoming enshrined in international policies. The global community can look to these increasing provisions also as platforms for working towards SDG 6.5 as transboundary cooperation over the management of freshwater resources looks increasingly towards this intergenerational scale of perspective and awareness of the need to prepare for a present and future defined by change in the climate and in its effects on water resources. That will do it for this episode of Climate Ready. Thanks again to our interview guest, Andrew Bryant, and to Lynn Porta for her Climate of Hope contribution. Until next time, everyone.
The Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.